You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Financial Clarity for Doctors. This is Rochelle Vanderzanden here with Corey Janoff. Hello. Yep. And today, we're going to talk about student loans again because things are changing again. <laughs> and we say when we say student loans this time, we specifically mean federal student loans. They've been working a lot on income-driven payments and public service loan forgiveness and making changes and making it a little bit easier for borrowers to handle student loans, especially knowing that payments are going to kick back in soon. And it's been more than three and a half years, and people are very accustomed to not making student loan payments. And so I think what's happening is that the government's trying to make this not a disaster when they do kick back in. So there are some things that are changing that that should make it a little bit easier. Um, In terms of time frame, it looks like interest is probably going to start accruing again in September and payments will likely be resuming in October. And I think first things first, for any of you out there listening who have federal student loans and haven't been paying a lot of attention to them because you didn't have to, I think it's time to log in to your student loan servicer. (laughs) And it could be different than it was before. Like a lot of people entered, you know, COVID and they had Fed loan servicing and that doesn't even exist anymore. So if that's the last time you logged in, you're going to have to figure out something else. Um, The new servicers, Mohila is a big one. Mohela, I don't even know how you say it, but that's the one. And then also there's like Advantage, Great Lakes, there's a few different ones. But if you search your email, I'm sure that you have some reminders in there some notifications about your student loans movings and and things like that. So the first thing that we would suggest, and we're going to go through like, what do we need to do? And then we're going to go through, here are some of the changes today. So keep listening if you just want to hear about the changes. But first of all, we'd suggest just logging in and checking to see when your next payment due date is, what the amount's going to be. You can probably find that on the Student Loan Servicer website as well. And then also, if you are working towards public service loan forgiveness, it will be very helpful to know when your next income recertification date is. It probably will not be right away. And so, you know, you probably want to wait as long as you can to recertify your income, especially if you are earning more now than you did when you went into forbearance because your payment's probably going to go up. So, you know, it'll be really helpful to know when that's going to happen. Yep. Prepare yep. for payments. They're finally coming. Finally. I know. I think it's going to be a rude awakening for quite a few people, especially high income earners or people who have, you know, left training and are now attendings and are going to make quite a bit more money. Like your your payment's going to skyrocket at some point. Yeah, you've been spoiled last few years. If you're an attending, you got, you know, two, three hundred thousand of student loans, maybe more. Um, I mean, you're going from making zero payments the last several years to you know, several thousand dollars plus potentially, depending on what your loan balance is and your income. So that's not not insignificant. Um, so prepare for that here. And um, yeah, just like Rochelle said, double check so you know what to expect coming forward. Um, if you are pursuing PSLF, you know, double check your employment 
certification. Um, if you haven't done it in a while, maybe fill out that PSLF employment verification form, which is since the beginning of the pandemic has been consolidated into into the PSLF application. It used to be two separate forms. Now it's just PSLF application, and you check a box at the top on what you're trying to do. Either you're applying for forgiveness, you're trying to see what your total payment count is, etc. Um, so it should be pretty straightforward. Have your employer sign off on it, and then it should update your your number of credited payments towards PSLF. And if you go back a few months and listen to our episode we did back then, I think it was in April, I want to say. Um, there was a looming deadline of May 1st, which has since been moved to the end of this year, to, to get payments counted towards PSLF that previously wouldn't have counted. So go back and listen to that episode if you didn't, because there's still an opportunity to get some additional payments credited towards PSLF, like if you were in forbearance at all during training, anything like that. Um, you potentially could get a boost to your your payment credits, or if you're on the wrong payment plan. Um, so there's still time for those of you to potentially qualify for PSLF when previously it looked like it was not feasible for you. Right. I think one thing about that is that if you log into Mohila, there is a place, and I mean, I'm only familiar with this through like secondhand knowledge, but there's a place in Mohila where you can log in and you can view all of the payment history that you have. And if you have any months that list like employment verification required, it means that that month there is a payment that could qualify if you worked for a quali- like a, an employer that qualified. And that's pretty key because some of those payments may be ones like maybe you were in forbearance, like Corey said, maybe you know you weren't in what you thought was the correct payment plan, anything like that. But if it literally just says employment verification required all they need to know is that you're working for a qualified nonprofit or you know a government employer or something like that so those are the ones you want to look for and if you were working for someone just submit a new employment verification for that time period and that could take a little legwork especially if it was a long time ago but i think that that is the case for quite a few people yes all right on to some of the big changes. Um, the big one here is, is is called the SAVE repayment repayment plan. And uh, do you know what SAVE stands for? I forgot to look it up. Oh, but man. I bet I have it open pop here. Pop quiz. Yeah. So anyways, Hold it doesn't on. matter what it stands for. It's replacing repay, which is the revised pay-as-you-earn plan. So if you're in repay currently, you're automatically going to be moved to SAVE. Don't know the exact date, but I think it's soon. I think the, the hope is this fall, probably January at the latest, but it's the government, so who knows. But eventually, in the near future, you will be moved into the save plan automatically. And we'll talk about um, what that means here in a second. Yeah, it looks like three of the three of the things we're talking about today are supposed to be implemented before the student laws payment ends. So if you're in repay, you should be moved to pay in the, yeah. Like in September. Yeah, exactly. All right. Soon. All right. Soon. Yeah. Don't quote us on that, though, because it (laughs) may not happen. Again, it's the government. Um, So pay, pay as you earn, will no longer be available for new enrollments. If you're already in it, you're grandfathered in. Um, You can elect to switch to repay if you want. Same with IBR. IBR will still be available for new enrollments. Um... But uh, you'll 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 still be on it if you're currently on it. You won't be automatically moved. The only people automatically moved to the save plan are the ones on repay. Um, 
but you could elect to proactively switch to save if desired. That being said, if you're on pay-as-you-earn and you move to save, you can't go back because pay-as-you-earn is going away. Um, so, if, so, you know, sit tight. Wait till the end of this episode. We'll talk about if it makes sense to switch to save here towards the end um, and, and where it could or, or could not make sense. But, um, but yeah, pay-as-you-earn, IBR, staying for existing people, um, repay is being replaced by save. So what does this mean to payments, Rochelle? Yeah. So I think the big thing is that on the save plan, um, your calculation for your payment is changing. So right now, the repay and pay as you earn both say that your payment is 10% of your discretionary income. That piece is not changing. What's changing is how they determine what discretionary income is. So really, it's supposed to be the amount of money like above what you really need to survive, right? So it's 10% of that amount. So previously, that was determined based on 150% of the poverty line. So 150% of your wages based on the poverty line, they determine that you need, and then it's 10% of the amount above that that ends up being your payment, and that's what the current calculation is. With the new save plan, now it's going to be 225% of the poverty line. So it's just that chunk of money that you automatically don't have, like a calculated payment amount based on, that's what's changing. That's what's increasing. So they, they've determined you, you really need more of your money to like pay your bills and do things like that than they have previously determined. So because of that, like the amount that's considered your discretionary income is smaller and therefore your payment will likely be smaller as well. So it's it's still not, you know, like a huge amount of money that they determine you need to survive. Like it's kind of still surprising, like where the poverty line is, for example. But if you're a trainee, especially if you have a family, it may mean that you don't have a payment like your your, you know, income driven payment calculation may be zero. If you're a single filer, it could still be very likely that you have a payment, but it'll be smaller, which is nice. Yeah, I just did a quick Google, and it looks like 2022, so it's probably higher this year, but from studentaid.gov, for 48 states and D.C., the poverty line for a family size of one, so it's going to vary based on how big your family is, was about $13,600. It's insane. Um, so take 150% of that, yeah. and, or now 225% of that, and then that's like the yeah. baseline for so I guess to, you know I have the 20, math right in front so, of me here. So it's Corey. like thirty thousand bucks basically. It's, yeah, it's thirty two thousand eight hundred for a single borrower. If you make underneath that, it's your payment will be zero. It's sixty seven thousand five hundred for a family of four is two hundred twenty five percent of the poverty line as of now. And again, like Corey said, that kind of gets indexed for inflation. So if, if it's thirty two thousand for a family of one, if you're single, no kids, and you're making say. 62,000, 30,000 more than that threshold, um, you know, third, then just that 30,000 more would be the 10% of, so you'd pay 3,000 a year. So what is that? 250 a month would be what your student loan payment is as a resident. Yep. Um, obviously it's going to vary. So I think, I think in like California, maybe New York or something, the, the poverty line's a little different, but, um, it's but like yeah. Alaska so, and Hawaii or something like it's something surprising, but hmm. yeah. All right. So yeah, your payments as a trainee, you know, in most cases are going to be two, three, four hundred a month. Maybe more if you're married and have your spouse has some income and you're on a plan that includes your spouse's income. But mm -hmm. moving on, 
Yeah. So, <laughs> another big change. Um, it's everything's moving electronic. Woohoo! So they say. So it's going to be an electronic <laughs> form that you fill out. You don't need to get wet signatures from your employer. Supposedly there'll be a. You can like enter it on the website your employer's EIN and info, and it'll just automatically go to them via DocuSign or something for someone at the employer to sign off on. So supposedly, in theory, this will expedite the process, make it easier to obtain signatures from your employer um, or past employers, and then once it's signed by the employer, it automatically goes to the servicing provider, which would be Mohila if you're if you're pursuing PSLF. Um, so it should make the process faster. Um, you know, we'll believe it when we see it. You can still get wet signatures, though, uh, if desired. So, you know, if you're having trouble with the system or you can't find the employer's EIN or something or doesn't show up right, you can always, you know, take the form in and get it signed. Um, or if you're just, if they're not signing the electronic version, you could march into HR's office and be like, sign this form to verify I work here, please. And, uh, but anyways, so that should hopefully make things a little bit better for you. Yep. And the other thing is that you can also, um, moving forward, you should be able to link your IRS, like tax filing information, to your income certification so that your income is automatically recertified each year. Um, so that it's supposed to be able to update your income and your family size. So how many dependents you have is also on your, your tax filing and things like that. Um, that is something where we will want to be a little bit cautious about timing of income certification. So like if you usually certify your income end of February, don't file your taxes super fast. Like we don't want your new taxes filed <laughs> if your income has increased until after your income certification goes through. So kind of like keep an eye on that. This will be interesting to see like how it works in practice, like what the timing is and things like that. Um, but it'll be nice to not have to do one more piece of paperwork and make sure that you get that done. Yeah, I'm curious. I think it's an optional thing to link, but I'm wondering if in the future it's just going to be an automatic deal that they sync up, to, uh, make it everyone's lives easier. And uh, yeah, so this will automatically recalculate your payment amount, um, which is convenient for you, um, and, and continue to renew your, your terms each year. Another one, interest rate subsidies. So this one's huge, especially if, if you're in training, because um, a lot of the time for trainees, the, the payments you make, we talked about that example earlier where your payment would be 250 a month, that doesn't even scratch the surface of what your total interest is going to be. Like if you owe a quarter million in, in student loan debt at 7% interest, you know, that's like $20,000 almost in interest each year, but you're only paying 3000 So, So you're not even coming close to covering the full interest. So if you're on one of the income-driven payment plans, so moving forward, save, grandfathered into pay as you earn, or IBR, um, as long as you're making your required minimum monthly payment, no further interest will accrue on your loans. So in theory, your loan balance should not grow. So if average med student finishes with $200,000 of student loan debt, they should finish residency with $200,000 of student loan debt rather than two fifty dollars or $300,000 know, with all the accrued interest. So you shouldn't be accruing any interest moving forward as long as you're making your required monthly payment. Yeah, I think the one other thing that we talked about with the repay interest subsidy previously is that if you like 
moved out of repay after the fact all of that interest that you were supposedly like taken away from your loans that like 50 percent calculation was added back if you switched out of that payment plan so it looks like on the new save plan that that's not the case so that's also huge so you get a larger interest subsidy and if it ends up that you don't want to be on save long term because you want to refinance or, or something like that it doesn't look like that interest is going to get added back in so this is something that you know i I don't know that it's super clear about refinancing. It just said something about like if you switch between payment plans. Um, So I think that that still remains to be seen, but it's very possible that that could save you so much in interest, whether you're going private practice or you're pursuing public service loan forgiveness. Yep. Let's see. They've uh, simplified the full-time work requirement to just be a flat 30 hours a week. So different employers have different definitions of what they consider full-time. You know, at one employer, you need to work 40 hours a week to be full-time. Another, it's, you know, 32 hours a week. Um, so now it's as long as you work at least 30 hours a week, doesn't matter what your employer considers full-time employment. As long as you're you know working at least 30 hours a week at a qualifying employer or 30 hours total across multiple qualifying employers, you're considered working enough hours to qualify for PSLF. So part that was the, one of the big drawbacks. If you were working less than full-time, your payments don't count towards PSLF. So now, as long as you're working at least 30 hours a week, three 10-hour shifts a week, um, you know, four eight-hour days, like you, you, you can qualify for PSLF. So make sure you're working at least 30 hours moving forward. Yep. One of the prior pitfalls of the program was paid-ahead status. So we often had clients come across this where maybe they paid extra or something like this, or they they put a, a lump sum towards their loans. And then after that, like they were considered in paid ahead status. So when they made their income driven payments, it didn't even count because they technically didn't have a payment due, which was just silly. It was just this ridiculous, bureaucratic little mess up, basically. So they fixed that so that paid ahead status no longer results in future payments not counting, um, even if. The minimum payment is zero because you're paid ahead. It's not an issue. You still have to make the 120 payments. So it's not like you can be like, oh, I'm scheduled to have my loans forgiven in 24 months. So I'm just going to make my next 24 months of payments right now so I can wipe them out right now. That's not going to work. You still have to be in the program for 120 months. The other thing is that they will only count like 12 months forward. So you can only really pay ahead and have 12 months counted. You can't have any more than that counted, like, proactively, basically. So if you do get, like, a lump sum distribution, like, you know, a grant from NIH or, you know, you're involved in, like, Medi-Cal or something like that, if you have chunks of money that are coming to you for the purpose of putting it towards your student loans, you don't have to worry about, like, putting that towards your loans and then being caught in this weird paid-ahead status limbo. So that's not going to be a problem anymore. And really, that's the only reason, like if you're doing research for NIH or something and getting those lump sums that have to be applied to student loans, like that's the only reason you should be paying more than required if you're pursuing PSLF. Like make the minimum payments, no interest accrues, after 10 years, loans are forgiven. Um, So until you get into practice and if you're working for a non-eligible employer uh, and you know you're not going to be qualifying for PSLF, you know, then sure, pay extra. But until you get to that point... um, you probably just want to pay the minimum required so you can get the maximum amount forgiven. All right. 
Next up, certain types of deferment and or forbearance will now count as credited payments, kind of like the last three years of COVID forbearance count as payments towards PSLF. So there's, I mean, you can Google the list, but administrative forbearance is a big one. So like when you're switching between payment plans, usually there's a couple months of where it's like in forbearance while they process it. So those that time period now still counts as qualifying payments towards PSLF. Um, and then much of the rest of them are, are, are military-related services. So if you're on active duty or post-active duty or National Guard, et cetera, um, you know, those all still count as qualifying time periods for PSLF. Um, looks like if, you, uh, if you're going through cancer treatment, you can put your loans in deferment during that time and have them still count. Um, and then, yeah, I think that's that's the bulk of it. Is uh, is those mostly military, but a few other deferment periods. Yeah, <clears throat> I think there is one other issue that people previously had with PSLF, where if you consolidated your payments or like your loans, that <clears throat> then basically it counted as a new loan, and now you were starting over at zero, and that was terrible and that happened to a few people like accidentally because they didn't know that that would happen so now that does not happen but they will take a weighted average of the payments made on each of your loans so it it won't give you like the highest number of payments like one loan has 36 and the other loan has 12 it's not going to give you 36 on all of them like like happened for a little brief window but you don't have to worry about your your payment count being completely wiped out. It's probably worth doing a little bit of math to figure out if it makes sense to consolidate or not before deciding to do that. But you don't have to worry about it just completely wiping out your progress, which is nice. Yeah, so for example, like if you have $100,000 that you've made 40 credited qualifying payments towards and another 100000 with zero qualifying payments, if you consolidate them, you have $200,000 of loan and they take the weighted average. So you'd have 20 qualifying payments uh, towards that 200,000 total. So, it, you know, the math works out um, versus having staggered forgiveness dates, one 40 months ahead of the other. Um, but yeah, previously you had to restart with zero. Um, and I believe that change doesn't take effect until next summer of 2024, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, same with the, uh, the, the percentage of uh, poverty line. I think that's another summer of 2024 one. So the, you know, 10% of discretionary income above 225% of the poverty line. I think it's still the 150% until next summer. Um, so I think, I think that one is the soon one, the, the oh, new really? calculation. Okay. Yeah, we have the, the other one with the the undergraduate loans, which we're going to talk about briefly, is one that doesn't start until next year. Okay, so maybe it's the undergrad one. That's a, so undergrad is only five percent. Um, so grad loans, which is most of you listening, it's ten. It, you know, the percentage of ten percent doesn't change, but it's the poverty right. line that changes, and so it sounds like that's changing now more or less. But undergrad right. loans, if you if anyone listening has those, you know, currently it's same formula, ten percent of discretionary income, but that's changing to five percent of discretionary income. So for those of you or your friends who have undergrad loans, that minimum payment is going to be a bit smaller um, yep. as a result, which is nice. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the one other thing that's that's a kind of big news in in student loan stuff is that you know in California and Texas there's a lot of physicians that work at nonprofit facilities but because of how 
like medicine is kind of set up in those two states, a lot of physicians work for profit like groups that employ the physicians themselves. So they have they're working on this new law passed, and I believe this was effective as of July 1st of this year, that basically says that if you are primarily working at a nonprofit institution, even if you're employed by one of these private groups in these two states, in California and Texas, then you can get your payments counted toward PSLF. So the thing that I've had a hard time tracking down is how you are actually supposed to do the employment certification. I was trying to work through this with a client recently um, who works at exactly one of those physician groups and works in a nonprofit hospital in the state of California. And when we looked up her employer, you can look up employers on the, the PSLF website or studentaid.gov, I believe it is, where you enter in an EIN and it will tell you whether your employer is qualifying or not. <clears throat> and under her like employer, like the, the umbrella group, the physician group that she works for, it said undetermined. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that they're still working out exactly how to do this. But I think you take the steps to certify your employment and let them figure it out on their end, like how to make it work. Like you just do what you can do to get that counted. Yeah, my understanding, and I could be wrong, is that you fill out the employment certification using the nonprofit qualifying employers EIN and everything and you just need to get someone at that location to verify that you physically appear at that physical location um which again I think, if yeah I think there were two different ways that I saw online where it's like yeah. one is like you have your employer fill it out the person that pays you you know or maybe you have the facility fill it out but I don't know that the facility would necessarily be willing to sign off on that because you don't technically work for them so I think yeah I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this evolves but we're going to jump through some hoops and eventually like there will be some troubleshooting and it will it will figure itself out yeah I'm sure those facilities will eventually be willing because because I think the the government needs to know all right what's the nonprofit place you're actually working at um, that's where I th I'm under the impression you need the nonprofit to sign off. But like you said, Rochelle, if they don't, if you're not employed by them, that's where I think it might be one where you need to, rather than the electronic signature deal, you might need to take the wet forms, walk into your supervisor's off and be like, Hey, you know, I'm here. Can you sign this for me to say I work here at this location? Um, and I'm sure like every hospital in California and Texas are going to quickly become aware of this new law and know that they're going to be inundated with requests to get PSLF forms signed. So like the classic example or biggest example probably is you work at Kaiser, which believe it or not is a nonprofit hospital, but you're employed by the Permanente Medical Group, TPMG which is a for-profit physician group. So up to this point in time, physicians at Kaiser, you know, were not eligible for PSLF. Moving forward, only in California and Texas, um, you know, if you're employed by TPMG but working at the Kaiser Hospital, sounds like you should, moving forward, be eligible to get those payments, um, future payments counted towards PSLF. I, I haven't heard definitively if they will retroactively count payments, Again, a lot of this is up in the air. Sounds like the law just took effect as if we're recording this a week ago. So I think there's still some stuff to sort out. But yeah, good news for, for California and Texas physicians. Yeah, I have a lot of clients that this will affect, which is great. Yeah. Um, I think just as a kind of follow-up, like we've talked a lot about the benefits of the new save repayment plan, 
with the federal government loans. Um, the one question that comes up, or like for me at least, for my clients, is is there a reason to not switch to save? Like if we're on one of the existing repayment plans, not repay, repay is going to automatically switch to save. But if we're in pay as you earn or we're in IBR, does it make sense to stay in that plan? So the biggest thing, and this is a similarity between the save plan and repay, is that there is no cap on your income-driven payments. So if you are going to be a very high income earner, your payments will skyrocket at some point. Um, And depending on your income, depending on your student loan balance, it could be that having a cap at like that standard 10-year payment would be very useful for you in the future. And that is what pays you earn offers that SAVE does not offer. And what IBR offers that SAVE does not offer. It's that payment cap. So if, you know, you think that that may be you, you know, my discretionary payment will be much larger than a standard 10-year when I reach my full income potential. That could be a reason to consider staying on pay as you earn or IBR. Yeah, and this is kind of a function of how many years of credited payments do you have under your belt? Or if you're just starting in training, how many years do you expect to be in training? And what's the expected future income of your specialty and in relation to the balance of your student loans? You know, So there's a lot of moving parts here. It's going to be, be very case by case for each individual. Um, just kind of general thoughts without seeing specifics. Again, you know, case by case. But if you are in practice as an attending and you're currently on pay as you earn, unless you're in a really low income earning job or specialty like, you know, academic peds or something, um, you, you, you probably want to stay on pay as you earn because of that payment cap. If you, you know, because like, for example, if you have $100,000 of student loans, four years to go, and you're making $400,000 thousand dollars a year without the cap you know you're probably gonna be paying four thousand a month with the cap you're only going to be paying like a thousand a month because the 10-year calculation on a hundred thousand of debt is only going to be give or take a thousand bucks so yeah you, you kind of got to do the math what's going to result in the lower monthly payment for you if you're currently in training it's a little bit more of a guessing game because you don't know exactly what your future employment is going to look like and income but if again if you're on pay as you earn um, you know, it might be worth hanging on to that for a little while until you have a little more clarity on what your expected future payments might be. If you're just starting training and you got seven years to go, you think, yeah, save is probably in your best interest. And then once you get into practice, you could always switch to IBR to get that payment cap. Yes, the payment formula is, is going to be a slightly higher percentage of your discretionary income, but you know, do the math. What's going to result in the lower payment, the uncapped save plan or the capped IBR plan, and just go with whatever is lower at that yeah. point. I think they did change the IBR enrollment a little bit, though, so that if you've been in save for like five years, you can't switch to IBR. Mm. So it, they'll make it a little harder for you to jump through the hoops. But again, it's just going to be a matter of doing some hypothetical math to figure out what makes the most sense and obviously it's hard to do that when you're playing a guessing game about your future earnings and how many years you're in training and all of that kind of stuff but I think the good news is is that the government over the last few years has repeatedly tried to make it like trying to make it easier to qualify for public service loan forgiveness to handle your monthly payments all of that kind of stuff so I think that the trend is very good You know, so if you have student loans, obviously 
He didn't want to take on a boatload of debt to be a doctor, but that's what it took. And at this point, like, there's more assistance than there used to be to try to make sure that, you know, we can have this handled. I guess the one thing we didn't talk about very much is that, you know, with the SAFE plan and with some of those other income-driven plans, you can potentially have balances forgiven over a longer period of time, even if you don't work for like a, you know, a public employer or a nonprofit. But that's probably going to be a taxable amount at that point. So it, it doesn't make sense for most people. But again, something we didn't talk about a lot today, but something to keep kind of in the back of your mind also. Yeah, if you're working 20 years, making income. 20 to 25, yeah. depends yeah. on the loan type. 20 to 25 years on making income-driven payments on any of those income plans. Whatever's left after 20 or 25 years gets forgiven. Um, no one's reached that point yet. That, that law was enacted, I believe, in 2007. So 2027 would be the earliest first people that would be eligible. Um most physicians probably shouldn't need to take 20 or 25 years to pay off their student loans um, unless there's extenuating circumstances. So probably not going to apply to many of you, but uh, but yeah, it's that's another backup plan. Or yeah, I guess you know you're not working at a, but even if you are working at a non-eligible institution, it still probably isn't going to take you that long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let us know if you have questions. There's lots of resources out there that you can read about. I'm, we'll include a few links to the, the federal government announcements about the SAVE plan and things like that. So you can read some things directly from the source in the show notes. So if you want to look at that, just take a glance at the, the show notes from this episode. And again, feel free to reach out anytime if you have questions. There we go. Go team. See you next time. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram, Vanderzanden Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanden. Check out all of the podcast episodes on the affinitygroup.com slash podcast on our Finity Group YouTube channel or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our Financial Clarity blog at thefinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Finity Group, LLC.